Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Today, we are bringing you a mind-blowing episode of Drugs and Addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Love. I recently became a grandmother, something I highly recommend, although it's not all in your control. Throughout my daughter-in-law's pregnancy, I pondered on the wonders of fetal development. It is truly miraculous and so fragile. At just six weeks, the embryo's brain and nervous system begin to develop. During the second trimester, 250,000 neurons are created every minute. There are many things that can blow your mind or damage fetal brain development such as infections, medications, drugs, and alcohol. We know that the brain continues to grow after a baby is born until age 25 or more. And during all years of brain development, it is important to protect it and enrich it from conception, infancy, and until age 25. I love tracking my granddaughter's development on a weekly basis From being able to see her track or smile, make sounds, clap, roll over, sit. Yes, for a grandmother, every little minor achievement is a great big deal. And all those milestones are part of brain development. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi there. My name is Alex, and I am a second-year emergency medicine resident. Dr. Lev, you and I worked together on a very busy ED shift this past weekend. While we're there, we had a lot of patients who admitted to substance use, including marijuana, alcohol, meth, um, and a lot of these patients were also awaiting psychiatric disposition. Um, I've heard that there is an association of mental health issues in children born to moms who use marijuana while pregnant. So my question is, would decreasing prenatal marijuana use decrease the incidence of mental health cases? Thank you, Alex. An excellent question that combines what you see in the emergency department and an upstream approach in preventing issues of what ends up coming to the emergency department. To answer your question, we need to go to the science from a scientist who does this type of research. Dr. David Berenger is such a scientist. He's a neuroscientist at Washington University in St. Louis, and he studies how brain development affects genetics and mental health, and he uses neuroimaging and biomarkers in his research. 
Dr. Berenger is part of the ABCD Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, and the ABCD study is the largest long-term study of brain development and child health supported by the NIH, tracking nearly 12,000 children at 22 different sites in the United States. You can find Dr. David Berenger's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. David Berenger, welcome to High Truths. Hi, happy to be here. So I'm really excited to have you. You are a neuroscientist, which sounds like a brainiac. Can you tell us what is a brain what is a brainiac neuroscientist? And and how did you decide to become one? Sure. So I mean I'm neuroscience for me is a set of tools for understanding um, what drives human behavior. Um, and I'm, you know, so I'm interested in um, topics like um, adolescent substance use and mental health, um, and how, and then I, um, and then I look at how you know development um, of the brain um, influences uh, those behaviors. So, how did you neuroscience covers a wide range of topics related to the brain, and you decide to focus on the issues of drugs, mental health, and adolescence. Why that specific focus? It's just what I fell into. I don't, there's not a good answer. <laughs> you know, it's just interesting to me. I yeah. don't know. It's, uh, you know, um, if I'm interested in some of these more common disorders, you know, mental health problems, depression specifically, substance use specifically. Um, and a lot of those arise or start to arise in people when they are kind of in that adolescent transition period. Um, and, and that's just kind of observationally, if you look at like demographics and stuff like that, so when they start to occur. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, one of my interests is kind of trying to understand why that is, what's happening that leads to that increased incidence um, in adolescence. And when you say adolescence, what age do you specifically mean? Yeah, we're really talking about 12 to 18 slash 20. Okay. That age range, yeah. Because if you talk to a, a high school senior or, you know, freshman in college, they don't consider themselves adolescent, right? Yeah, I mean, they're wrong. But obviously <laughs> they don't. But I think, right, there's, there's, an, there's this kind of interesting kind of protracted development in the brain that happens as people get older. But even in this, what you might call late adolescent period into the 20, early 20s, um, the brain is still developing. Um, but certainly much more rapidly when people are younger and their early teens it's happening. That's when we depict the period we typically think about as adolescence. But, you know, if you kind of personally, if I reflect back on my early 20s slash late teens, I can see that I was not a fully formed mature adult at that age, right? Yes. And our, and our listeners know that. We say keep them alive till 25 because your brain's not d done growing till you're 25. And yeah. uh, I know my kids, when they, after they turned 27, my son said, yeah, no, I think I could feel it stopping, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You did your dissertation on something I can barely pronounce, uh, neural biomarkers to detangle the cause of downstream consequences of alcohol use. It sounds extremely interesting, like a way of, well, if we could figure this out, we could maybe prevent alcohol use disorders and alcoholism. But tell us about that. 
Yeah, so that, so my dissertation was kind of formed around a, like a kind of a major central project. Um, and that project was to try to understand the relationship between alcohol use and brain structure. Um, probably your listeners have heard that alcohol shrinks your brain. Probably that's a that's a pretty common alcohol thing shakes your brain. Shrinks your brain. Shrinks. Yeah, it does. I mean, physically. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. So, so we hear that a lot, and obviously, it's true if a person has um, alcohol use disorder, you know, or you is abuses alcohol for a long period of time. There are changes to brain structure, which we think are probably related to, um, you know, causally using alcohol. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's a debate whether small amounts of alcohol, like moderate alcohol consumption, has an effect on the brain on brain structure. And that was kind of my dissertation was kind of centered around this question of does moderate alcohol use affect brain structure? Um, and the conclusion was that if it does, it's a really small effect. And actually, a lot of what we see when you look at like a group of people who drink and kind of like what we call, say, cross-sectionally, you look at their drinking and you look at their brains at the same time point and you look at that correlation between the two and you see this negative correlation, a lot of that is actually due to genetics. Um, genes that both drive brain structure and drive alcohol use um, rather than alcohol shrinking the brain when you drink it in moderate amounts. So my conclusion was actually that moderate alcohol use actually does not shrink the brain. That makes sense. I like it when the scientists uh, agree with what I see in the emergency department. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> giving you know, I, I like to confirm what's done, you know, in research in real life, and and I I would agree with that. Um, yeah. So uh, I actually thought when I read your dissertation that you looked at biomarkers like in birth and and we're able to predict alcoholism no not yeah that would be fun to do if we haven't done that yet i know your dissertation titles it's good to be vague so you can put everything in there okay you know, get, get credit for everything you've done <laughs> yeah right so um alex is a emergency medicine resident works in the emergency department sees a lot of patients who have alcohol use disorder, cannabis use disorder, uh, lots of methamphetamine use disorder, um, uh, all the substances. And she knew about a study uh, that, that correlates prenatal marijuana use with um, mental health. And so her question that I pose to you is, would decreasing prenatal marijuana use then decrease the incidence of mental health cases overall in the United States? That's a loaded question, but maybe it's you could st- say, tell you us, know, first of all, about your study. You had a, a, a great uh, study and published in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, the pediatric session, that looked at that. Right. So so it's really, well, I'm, as you know, and probably as you're sure your listeners know, it's really hard to establish causality in humans. So it's, it's really, so we have this study where we show that uh, prenatal cannabis use is associated uh, with increased mental health symptoms um, in adolescents at ages 9 to, I believe, 13, 
root 12 in this sample, um, over that age range. And it kind of persists over that age range. And we tried, you know, our absolute best to, to control for every risk factor for mental health problems that we had access to. Um, so we controlled for parents' history of mental health problems, broader family history of mental health problems, parents' use of other substances in, during and outside of pregnancy. We even, um, obviously, you know, economic status and education and various measures of how the pregnancy went, prenatal vitamins, even genetic risk for mental health problems. Um, and controlling for all of that, we see this association continue to be present in the data. Um, even so, it's hard to know that prenatal cannabis truly is causing these effects. Um, we think the, the associations look like it might be, but I always, I'm very uh, cautious when I talk about it because it's really hard to know. But our data would suggest that if we did reduce prenatal cannabis use, um, there could be a small decline in mental health problems, yes. Right. So interesting. So tell us how you came about this study. You took, um, did you follow mothers and give uh, who yeah, had babies so and followed on, or how did that work? A, um, there is a very nice, ongoing, nationwide longitudinal study of adolescent development called the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study. It's funded by the NIH, the government, mostly NIDA and a little bit of NIAAA. So drugs of abuse and alcohol abuse um, programs. Um, and it's following these adolescents for about 10 years. Uh, and, and, and it's a sample of just over 11,000 adolescents. So it's a massive longitudinal study of adolescent development, first of its kind. And in, at intake, the parents were asked to talk about the pregnancy how the pregnancy went, what happened during the pregnancy, what their behaviors were around the pregnancy. Um, so this is, of course, a report of pregnancy behavior that occurred a decade ago. Um, and so these mothers were asked to report on their cannabis use surrounding a pregnancy. And probably we can trust that if a person used cannabis now we're talking about 15 years ago during their pregnancy. They probably remember that they used cannabis. Um, and so we have that report of like whether or not they use cannabis, um, whether they use cannabis prior to knowing they were pregnant, um, and whether they continued to use cannabis knowing they were pregnant. Um, and that's unfortunately like all we really know. Um, you can imagine that asking somebody to report on their amount of cannabis use a decade ago is going to be very error prone. Um, so we don't have that data. So we have, it's like, it's a fairly um, blunt instrument, I guess. Um, and if you, if we think about it also, 10 years ago, the marijuana on the market was different than the marijuana now on the market. Absolutely. So yeah, whatever you're finding in your study, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of, this study is a, um, I guess I would like to say a reasonable first pass in a well-powered study to look at this question. 
obviously there's so many unanswered questions, and we have ongoing studies currently to try and address some of them. Um, but with our first study, there's yeah a lot of a lot of questions that we can't answer. So these you know eleven twelve thousand kids um, enrolled in the ABCD study. Um, yeah. Who are these kids and families? How did how did they get signed up? So there are. 22 universities around the country, um, each of which have committed committed to recruiting and retaining um, a few hundred of these kids. And so the idea is that we're sampling broadly across the nation geographically, um, and there are concerted attempts to have the sample of these students reflect the Kind of demographic makeup of the United States so in terms of the distribution of wealth in the sample, the distribution of different racial and ethnic identities in the sample, distribution of different religions in the sample. There, there's a concerted attempt to make sure that that matches the overall U.S. as um, much as we can. Um, so it's a moderately representative sample. Of course, people who agreed to sign their kids up for a decade-long study are not necessarily going to be perfectly representative of the general U.S. population, um, but they're reasonably representative. And as I said, almost every major city um, has a university that is recruiting kids to this this study. That's great. And what's the experience like for these families? They well, they, they of course are compensated for their time. Um, they come in for a longer visit every two years, and then there are shorter visits um, every six months and every year. So they're paid for the time every time they come in. There are questions. Um, they gave blood samples the first time they came in. They do a whole series of MRI scans every two years. Um, the parents have a lot of questionnaires they answered the first time they came in, and then the kids answer questions and get interviewed um, every time they come in. And they, they do um, behavioral tasks as well. And of course, the questionnaires cover everything from like mental health symptoms to um, things like how's your social life going and you know, inter, you know peer relations. Um, sexual development is a thing that will be measured soon. Of course, with the pandemic, there were some questionnaires about the pandemic and how that affected the kids and their families. Um, so it's a fairly broad study. And, you know, it's kind of a very, very broad and shallow, moderately shallow in terms of the phenotyping, as opposed to some studies that are really focused and deep with the kind of measures they acquire. So mm-hmm. I think it's fairly broad and shallow. And so you have this crazy database of all these students yeah. and all these data points. And um, is it open? So you're a, a researcher involved in the ABCD study. Do you say, okay, well, I want to look at marijuana effects and um, and and what pictures of the brain look like? Is do you say okay? I'm going to do that one. How is that work divided? Because there's so yeah. much information. So so yeah, the, the different different large scale studies have taken different approaches to this problem. The approach of the ABCD, and I think basically most studies funded funded by the U.S. government now, is just to say the data is available. It's minimally processed and cleaned, but it's there. And any researcher who gets approval um, 
from their university's IRB um, can download the data and do whatever they want with it. Nice. Excluding identifying participants. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, any kind of analysis you want, you can do with it. Wow. So so you said, hey, I want to look at the effects of um, prenatal cannabis exposure and how that affects um, these kids. And yeah. uh, so you tapped into the database and tell us a little more details of what you found. Yeah. So so pri- my colleagues have previously looked at this question and they had looked at these kids when they were nine and 10 and they had found you know, elevated mental health symptoms in particular, um, kind of general mental health burden with some focused effects surrounding um, believe disruptive behavior um, aggression and ADHD um, and some other interesting observations and, that did not survive correction and then what how old were they these kids then so these kids were nine and ten nine and ten so when they're yeah. for moms who are using marijuana when they were pregnant you actually found that their kids more than controls had problems with uh, ADHD uh, aggression, violence, yeah. depression? I think depression was not, not significant in this analysis, if I recall. Yeah. Um, looking at it now. It's it's interesting that it yeah. seems like that correlates with um, um, adolescents who use marijuana, regardless of their uh, maternal use, in having those symptoms. Right. Yeah. It's, I, th- I mean, I... It's both. That's both interesting in terms of maybe that's like continues the phenotype of using substances in the future, which will be interesting to look at, and also, of course, makes one very cautious about interpreting as a causal effect because it's hard. There, there could be, there could still be something where it's parents who use cannabis that are more likely to have kids who use cannabis, right. or it's kind of like missing. But are these nine and ten year olds using cannabis? Not yet. So there, that tells you something. It'll be interesting to see as they age, as they get older, whether they start using cannabis. Yeah. So few of them have used cannabis at this point that we just had to exclude it because there was like 15 kids. So you can't really do much with 15 kids. Right. But in a couple of years, once they get older. But it's safe to say that if you're if you're using marijuana when you're pregnant, there's more chance of having your children at age 9 and 10, without them using marijuana, having these problems. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a small effect, but absolutely, the, the uh, means, the group means are definitely higher. Right. In the case of use of, yeah. So, with, then, go ahead. Yeah, so my, you know, my, this is the second study was, we had a, had a couple more waves of data collection, it's a longitudinal study, and my question was, does the effect persist? Right, so now the kids are older now, right? Yeah. They were 9 and 10, we sound, found this, and now the kids are how old? Yeah, so we had 9 and 10, then we got 10, 11, and then we're at 11, 12. 11, 12. So now they're 11, 12 years old, and same thing. Yeah. yeah. Does it does it persist? And the answer is yes, it does persist. They remain elevated throughout this kind of early adolescent age period. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then it's. I mean, I, I see as, uh, as a scientist, you couldn't say for sure. But if we, if that, if we had more prenatal marijuana use, that means that we would have more of kids who have these behaviors. 
It's possible. Yeah. Right. If it, especially if we know that the potency that the and the that marijuana is out there now is more, then I would think even more of an issue. Right. Yeah. And of course, we don't know. Like you know, it's interesting. The potency is stronger in marijuana now, but obviously the balance between the different cannabinoids in marijuana has also changed. Mm-hmm. We don't know which specific cannabinoids might be driving this. If it is, if it is causal, we would not know which cannabinoids are driving it, or if it is any one. Which, right. which I think is one of those kind of questions that'd be really interesting to follow up on and look at different strains and different balances and compare people who use CBD to people who use oil and vape or people who use only edibles to right the the problem is you don't people think they know what they're using but we've also shown through studies published in JAMA that people don't really know right. what they're what they're taking and yeah obviously for strain it's hard to know for sure what exactly you're you're getting yeah, yeah. um so you know it, People who are interested in prevention science may look to this research and said, you know, if we could prevent um, pregnant women from using marijuana, including other drugs, of course, then we would have less incidence uh, in downstream uh, mental health yeah, and substance use mm-hmm. effects. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, and of course, right, though, you know, obviously with prevention science, you're already aware of this, but I always try you know, my whenever reporters ask me what my take-home message is, I'm always I always just say, you know, cannabis is marketed as a quote-unquote natural substance with no effects, and our the research shows that that's not true. Right? It isn't purely benign in terms of mental health consequences. Just because it's a plant doesn't mean that it's benign. Right. 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 Opium is a plant, and to nicotine, tobacco is a plant. There are a lot of plants. Right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the very, very successful marketing with cannabis in terms of that kind of angle. Yeah. Right. Um, so, did you also look at the brain images uh, in the ABC? Yeah, so in the first study we did. Yeah. Um, we don't. So I kind of mentioned that the MRI scans only happen every so often. So we have we haven't been able to follow up on them yet because they're not. The second wave of MRI scans isn't finished yet. So mm-hmm. we, the first study looked at them, looked at them, and there were some like hints of effects. I guess I would say nothing strong. What did you see? Um, so the, there was it didn't survive the most stringent level of correction, but there was a trend towards um, the overall brain size being a little bit smaller in kids whose mothers smoked marijuana. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so these are the, the ABC study that doesn't look at genes, right? That's another. We, it does look at genes. Okay. The gene, the genetic effects are obviously going to be a lot weaker. I mean, we are mainly using the genetics at this point to try and control for risk, you know, to control for genetic risk for cannabis use disorder, control for genetic risk for depression. Tell us about that. What does that mean? How do you use genes to control for risk? Yeah. So. Let's say there a study has been done in which they found genes for cannabis use disorder. So what they've done in that study is they've taken, you know, 500,000 people and they have data on whether or not they have cannabis use disorder. And then they've genotyped them. They have, you know, 10 million um, points along the genome that they've measured. And they ask, okay, is this point on the genome, every point on the genome associated with whether or not a person has cannabis use disorder? So then you have like a bunch of statistics for every point on the genome. 
Um, what you can do is you can use those statistics of association um, to compute a risk score for someone who is not in the study to begin with. So based on these results from the study, your relative risk of having cannabis use disorder is elevated or is about the same or maybe is a little bit lower. And, you know, it captures a small fraction of the genetic risk. Um, so that's, and so what we, we did is you can cre create these kind of risk scores for um, your kind of predispositional effects you want to control for. So for cannabis use disorder, for depression, for risk-taking, um, and include them as confounders in the model to try and adjust for what, for the people's kind of inherent genetic risk for these traits. That, that can try and give us some insight into whether the prenatal cannabis is a causal effect or not. So people may ask, you know, do I have a, a gene that makes me susceptible to cannabis use disorder, or does my child? Can you find that now? There are no individual genes that are have any substantial effects, and the risk scores um, are not at a point yet where they're useful for individual mm -hmm. predictions. Um, they're useful for kind of associations in large groups, but the the predictive power isn't strong enough to tell you about an individual's risk. Right. And is it, are you finding that these group risks, are they different for cannabis or alcohol or meth or opioids or other different drugs? Yeah. So people have differences in different risks, but there is also a, um, they are, they're also correlated. So yeah, we have a, so one of my co-authors has a new paper coming out soon where he kind of shows that there is a, what we argue is an overarching kind of addiction risk factor um, that drives a lot of the kind of individual risk, genetic risk for each of these different substances. So there are individual risk factors, but there's also kind of a addiction predisposition risk factor for a lot of them. That's, that's the same across substances. Yeah. So it doesn't. So it doesn't matter. So if you see this yeah. this group of genes, you're susceptible to some addiction, but we can't tell you which. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's both ones that are specific to individual addictions, right? Obviously, if you know there are some, these are usually the ones that are in the biological pathways that the substance taps into. So like for alcohol, it's genes in the alcohol metabolizing pathway, and Right. For nicotine, it's genes in the nicotinic receptor. Um, but then there are also um, genes that are related just to kind of an individual's kind of personality and predisposition to addiction more broadly, regardless of the specific form. And that suggests that sometimes some of what, why some people are addicted to one substance versus another substance, which we know clinically is the case, is just circumstances. The reason why someone is addicted to, you know, cannabis versus alcohol is because of when they were exposed to the substances and at what age the individual experiences they had occurred. Right. Well, well, we know with um, as you know, as an emergency physician dealing with the patients, right, if I ask about a family history of you know cancer or heart disease, we know that there's associations and there's associations um, with family history of addiction. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. So that yeah, kind and of, that of course, indicates both like a genetic 
predisposition, but also an environmental effect. That's right. That you're, if you're around a specific substance more, you're more like that's more likely to be a substance that you might form a dependence on with. Right. But if you know you have a risk factor, then that you can, can help you, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if if you have a heart attack, you know, I say, you know, some things are out of your control, like your family history, but you can control tobacco, blood pressure, cholesterol. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, diet, right? And the same thing with substance use disorder. If you know you have it in your family, there's, you know, some things are out of your control, but there are other things that you can can do. And primary prevention, probably at a young age, starting in prenatal use is probably number one and continues after that throughout brain development. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely prevention is super important. And we don't want people smoking, <laughs> doing drugs when they're pregnant. That's just not a good idea. So, I, yeah, I, I would agree that we don't, we don't want to encourage people to use cannabis when they're pregnant. Yeah. Right. We've, we've had um, other scientists on this show who look at the specific gene and notice that um, men who use cannabis, uh, that their sperm even physical appearance looks different, and also the genes in that sperms are altered, and mm-hmm. and we call it mm-hmm. weed whacking. Uh, your weed weed whacks your your genetics. I don't know if you run into that. Yeah, I don't look at the germline, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know much about that actually. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, what would be your advice based on the, your? Uh, multiple research uh, looking um, at, you know, brains, yeah. this ABCD study, um, et cetera. Yeah, I, know. I think when it's kind of specific to prenatal use, you know, um, like my wife is pregnant right now. Oh, congratulations. You know, thank you. So, you know, we, I see so many doctors who are say, you know, oh, normally you would take this, but you're pregnant, so don't take anything. Right. You know? So the, the, the default in the medical establishment is like ultra caution when it comes to medications in people who are pregnant, um, which I think makes sense because it's so unethical to do a study in people who are pregnant. So you don't want to test, you, want to, you don't even want to tempt the fates in terms of safety and ethic and safety. Right. Um, and also cell and, division is so rapid and fragile at that age. Absolutely, right? exactly. You, wow. You, right. You, for the offspring, you just, like, don't want to risk it. Um, and so, you know, I think that taking carrying that kind of stance forward, it, the same kind of caution needs to be applied with everything that a person who is pregnant does in terms of the substances they, they use. Um, and if you are at a point in your pregnancy where your symptoms are such that you really think that using, you know, some people use cannabis to like self-medicate for nausea, right? So if you really think that you need to use cannabis to self-medicate for nausea because your nausea is so bad early in pregnancy, you know, what I would recommend is you need to have a serious conversation with your healthcare provider about other options, you know, because that's, that's really a pretty serious and decision. From what I hear, the cannabis dispensaries tell the pregnant women, don't tell your doctor that you're using. Right. right. Insane. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, if you have little kids, anytime you hear a stranger tell you, don't tell anybody, that's usually not a, a – that should be a red flag. Yeah. Well, or these um, – I'm sorry, just like a little bit off topic, but these, you know, gift card scams where a person gets told to, you know, take buy a bunch of gift cards and then like don't tell anybody you're doing it, but you have to like, you know, just, they pretend that they're the bank and like get these gift cards. You don't tell people you're getting gift cards and like and then like send them to me and then I'll – you know, right. That, that, that's that, right, David. Anytime someone flag. tells you don't tell anybody, that's a red flag that that's yeah. not a good thing. <laughs> that should be like exactly. a general life advice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's my that's my big take home is don't, you know, exercise extreme caution. That is so fun. And so is this going to be your first baby? Yeah. yeah. I could tell just I've, I've a grandmother for the first time. And I'm sure as a neuroscientist, you're going to be like following the brain development. But when a baby's born, you could you could like see those neurons connecting. It is absolutely incredible. From day to day, yeah. you could see that development. And it, it's the funnest oh, yeah. thing. So yeah. wow, how exciting. So uh, blessings of, of health uh, to mom and, and baby. Thank you. And so... I also noticed that you had a blog on COVID and mental health. Did you use that ABCD study to look at that or just in general? Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, I I, um, I had helped a little bit with kind of right when COVID started, a lot of psychologists started wanting to study it. Mm-hmm. So I had helped a little bit with kind of doing a little bit of coordination. Interesting. Well, I haven't looked at the COVID specifically yet. Yeah. So, uh, have you seen anything specific or any conclusions or not yet? We all have a gestalt, like you know. Yeah, we all have the gestalt, but I I don't know if there are any any really solid conclusions besides, of course, that COVID made things worse, and it was worse for people with less social support. Right. I don't know, it was particularly shocking. Right. We know drug use increased, alcohol use increased, more people died of fentanyl than ever, ever before. And that hasn't stopped. And my germophobia has not gone away. (laughs) Same. Um, So as a scientist, what is your greatest research aspiration? Like what would be like a a fantastic study that you wish that you would be able to? Oh. A dream big. Yeah, dream big. I, I am right now. I am really interested in getting following people much more closely. So, a lot of times, like with this ABCD study, you know, we stuck the kids came in once a year, or the MRI scans are happening every two years, and you kind of have to like infer what happened in between those visits. So some studies, of course, are doing like questionnaires where you ask people questions a couple times a day. Um, and I am really interested in kind of doing that with MRI scanning, you know, getting people to come into the scanner like every week and kind of tracking the brain, um, brain changes at a much more fine grain level, say in, you know, people who are actively using substances or kind of like tracking those brain changes at a much more fine grain level. I think is a really interesting and exciting thing. Yeah. And also if they stop using substances to see if it comes back. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because, I mean, we've seen that. uh, We've tracked people with heart. People who use methamphetamines really destroy their heart. And uh, Mm -hmm. in in 
California, if I see a person younger than 50 with heart disease or pacemaker, it, it happened from meth until proven mm. otherwise. But doing echocardiogram study, if people stop using meth, it's, it can be reversible if you get yeah. it in time. So I don't know if the brain is that plastic. You only get so many neurons for your entire life. That's it. You don't get more. That's it. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you destroy them in the way, you won't get them back, but you may kind of um, compensate with, with adaptability, right? Is that, yeah. did yeah. I say that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting. Well, um, I want to thank Alex. Um, who's going to be a great emergency physician. And I wish you, Alex, a lot of success and a long and satisfying career in emergency medicine. And David, thank you. Your research is critical in the relatively new field of prevention science. And by understanding neurodevelopment, we hopefully uh, help prevent addiction and mental health disorders in the first place. And so I wish you a lot of success in your grand research goals and baby. Thank you so much. Baby, baby of most of all. Yeah. Thanks. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaac1.org that's i-a-s-i-c-1.org to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding listen to their speaker series and follow the science on marijuana high truth producer is dave revis from davy boy productions i'm your host dr oni lev we hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths <laughs>